Hello, my lovelies. Welcome back to another episode of Did You Read the Book, a comparative podcast where movie buffs and bookworms come together to talk about stories and their adaptations that we love, hate, or love to hate. I'm your host, Aaron Palmer, and I am yet again joined by the lovely Dan. Hello, Dan. Welcome back. Hello, hello, Aaron. Happy to be here. Yes. Welcome back for another round. And we apparently Alan Moore is the theme. This is our (laughs) our go-to theme. I'm so excited. This is a great topic. Oh, yeah. A little different than last time. Same vein. Yeah, still very dark. Um, still very weird and creepy and gritty. Um, so, Alan And Moore. even less hopeful this time. Um, I don't know how that's possible, but yes. <laughs> All right. So, we kind of gave a little teaser. Dan, what are we talking about today? Uh, so, today we are talking about Alan Moore and Eddie Campbell's classic work, From Hell. Uh, it was initially published in 1989. It started out being collected as a feature in the small print run indie comic Taboo. Uh, then it became its own series under Tundra Publishing and then Kitchen Sink. And finally, in 1999, it was collected by Top Shelf Comics. Woohoo! It's a classic. It's very grim. Um, yeah. It was uh, adapted a little while later. That's that's something we'll be talking about. Um, <laughs> but it was it was considered a really big deal when it first came out. It was uh, it was one of Alan Moore's greatest hits, along with all his other greatest hits. Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, and we'll get into why that is because there's a lot. I thought V for Vendetta was a lot to unpack, and then this bad boy got whipped out. And I'm like, okay, yep, <laughs> so it's dense. there's a lot in there. It, to talk uh, about. Every chapter comes with afterwards. <laughs> seriously damn yeah it's it's intense um yeah and so then you know you kind of alluded to it already the adaptation is also called from hell it was directed by the hughes brothers in 2001 and it's starring johnny depp heather graham sir ian holm robbie coltrane jason fleming and many 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 other actors it's actually pretty stellar cast mm-hmm, um yeah. man C- sir ian Holm. whenever i see him on the billing i'm like god yes. bless you bilbo <laughs> uh, you know oh. I, ho- I hope he's living it up in the land of the elves <laughs> i know r.i.p sir ian Holm. He's, he's yet another uh, when i was doing you know research for this one just like with uh john hurt on mm-hmm. v for vendetta i was like i know i crushed your soul <laughs> Yet again, I've crushed your soul, Dan. Oh, my favorite. I'm so sorry. Old, old, old British gentlemen are shuffling off. I know. Off. They left us too soon, man. <laughs> yeah. I tell you. I know. I know. I always have to. another five Hobbit prequels, you know. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a whole other topic for later. <laughs> don't worry, folks. Hobbit is on the list. <laughs> I would love to do that at some point. Holler out if anybody's interested. <laughs> Oh my gosh! Soul. I can, yes. I can only handle brutal serial killers. I don't know if I can handle that. <laughs> Fact. Oh my gosh! All right. Well, before we dive on in, you know the drill, folks. Spoiler alert: We're talking about things in depth. There is nothing that is going to be held back. So if you don't want things spoiled, pause. Do your thing. Do what you got to do. Come back to us, and then we will deep dive together. And before we get started, Mr. Dan. Yes. The age-old question. Are you pro-source, pro-adaptation? I am so unbelievably pro-source. I'm so shocked. (laughs) (laughs) I'm stunned. I... I'm, I'm gonna... I know it's an unpopular position to take with this, uh, this pair of... 
uh, <laughs> set of material, this adaptation. Um, but yeah, I think uh, I think the source material is just a little bit better. Okay. I like how you put it so delicately, a little bit better. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sure, sure. We'll go with that. You know. It's, <laughs> it's like how the the sun is slightly hotter than Antarctica. Like, it's a little yeah, bit just, hotter. Just a smidge. <laughs> slightly. All right. Well, let's dive on in. Do you want to give us a synopsis of the source material, please? All right. So here's what I've got for the synopsis. London, 1888. The heart of a mighty empire is gripped by terror as a brutal murderer stalks the streets. His targets? Four impoverished women who attempted a blackmail scheme to save their own lives. Little did they know that this would unleash one of the most notorious serial killers in history. Madness, occult conspiracy, and the iron heel of empire come together in From Hell, Alan Moore's rendition of the story of Jack the Ripper. Ooh, hot damn. Dun, dun, Ugh. dun. Ugh. And I take it you also wrote that? Yes, yes. Because you're a mad genius. <laughs> mad genius, Dan. Folks, well, if you haven't listened to our V for Vendetta episode, go listen to it because in that episode are recommendations of things that Dan has written himself because Dan is awesome. <laughs> and I'm dropping that in there. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, would be much appreciated. Oh, so yeah. good. Well, you said everything beautifully, so let's let's take that apart. Tell me yeah. everything. Thoughts. What do you like? What do you hate? So, uh, from hell is it's very interesting. Um, I think this is one of the biggest demonstrations, maybe outside of League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, of mm. one of Alan Moore's big strengths. I think as a as a writer is that he is an obsessive researcher. God, yeah. Um, and, you, and you have to remember, you know, this was being put together in the late 80s, so you can't just hop onto Wikipedia. Like, yeah, he was, don't just Google it. You know, yeah, he was literally yeah. going through all of these different, you know, libraries and collecting old books and dusty, you know, ancient bookstores and stuff like mm-hmm. that. Um, but it is a very, very meticulously researched rendition of the the Ripper killings um, in London mm-hmm. in the 1880s, and it is heavily inspired by a conspiracy theory book that is almost a hundred percent discredited. <laughs> um, uh oh. And uh, what's what's Let's... so <laughs> so interesting about this is you know this story as it unfolds after every chapter, Alan Moore has written all of these sort of footnotes, these afterwards mm-hmm. explaining different little incidents and references and things like yeah. that. And what's funny is that as you're reading his footnotes, you know, he cites all of his sources and then on some of them he'll say, everybody actually thinks this bullshit is just a bunch of crap. Nobody actually thinks this is seriously to be considered, but it worked much better for the story. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's, it's a big, big sprawling uh, storyline. I'm trying to tie as much of a bow on it as as I can. Uh, the basic yeah, <laughs> the basic concept is it is inspired by the real life uh, Ripper killings. Mm-hmm. Um, in this case, the culprit in the story uh, is Sir William Gull, who was a mm-hmm. very prestigious uh, surgeon 
he was not the royal surgeon, but he was a royal surgeon. There were several. Yeah, yeah that's and, that's typical. Right. Yeah. So he so he was this very prestigious gentleman. Mm-hmm. Um, and the conspiracy theory is this is based on is that uh, these four uh, women, these uh, sex workers in uh, Whitechapel district, had learned of a secret affair um, mm-hmm. between one of the princes and a commoner that mm-hmm. had resulted in a child and a royal bastard. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the story, uh, they attempt to launch a blackmail scheme. Basically, they're being threatened uh, by this gang and they decide to try to, to blackmail this uh, um, upper crust artist that they know. Um, mm-hmm. They're trying to get him to get them. I think I figured out how much it translates to in modern money. I think it was. The of course you did, Dan. God yeah. bless you. <laughs> well, it, it, it's something ridiculous. It's something like I think they tried to get like 30 pounds or something like that. In 1880s? In 1880s, which translate, I, I figured it out and it translated to something like. I'm getting the numbers all screwed up, but it translated to something like eight grand. So, okay. so it was like, what's sort of interesting to me about that is like the $8,000 is not nothing, you know, right? Yeah. However, that, blackmail nowadays, like, we're yeah, talking millions. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and that, and that, you know, I think it's part of, um, it's part of sort of the tragedy of the story is that these women are so spectacularly impoverished. I know. That that, uh, that was a huge that sum this of seems money. like, more, you know, mm-hmm. oh my God, we're going to blackmail, we're going to blackmail the royal family. Well, how much do we ask them for? 8,000 bucks. 80, 80 <laughs> bucks. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, That's a good point. Oh, I can't believe you did the math. Of course you did the math. Yeah, well, I, I did the math and then I, I forgot to write it all down. So, oh. um, you know, yeah, that's fine. Me, so a couple thousand dollars. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's well a, under the million it is a mark. remarkably small <laughs> amount of money. Um, yeah. that they're asking for um but in any case so the way the plot shakes out is they they attempt this blackmail word filters up all the way to the queen and she mm-hmm. basically has this very harsh reaction where she says this cannot be tolerated and she asks sir william gull to fix it you know fix and it heavy quotations the whole, <laughs> the whole thing is that gull is a freemason and he is not just a Freemason, but he is in particular deeply involved in this occult aspect of Freemasonry. And so he mm-hmm. takes this as license to enact a series of what are basically human sacrifices, is that mm-hmm. each of these women he is going to hunt down and kill and slice apart in very specific locations to yeah. exert this sort of occult masculine power over the divine feminine. Um, so that is cute. That is <laughs> trying to compact the story as much <laughs> to as the it best can of our ability be compacted, <laughs> yeah. but it is huge. It has oh my God, yeah. all these different, you know, characters and personalities, some famous, some obscure, you know, there's mm-hmm. a, there's a cameo by uh, what's his name, uh, Buffalo Bill's Wild West yeah. show, and yeah, that's right. In the, uh, the Elephant Man is in my very favorite sequence of the story. Yeah, um, you know, it's it's just gigantic. Um, yeah, I think uh, Moore discusses it a little bit, but there's a sort of a theory about. Basically, he's using this particular crime that actually happened, right? Mm-hmm. And instead of 
you know, treating it as a whodunit, right? Like this mm-hmm. is not, it is never a secret in the story that Gull is Jack the Ripper. You're basically following him for a lot of right. it. Right. He's could... like the narrator for 80% of it, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. The, and there's, uh, you know, yeah. so a lot of the story is told from his perspective. It is not, mm-hmm. you know, it's not really a, ooh, how are they, you know, who could it be? And how are they going to catch him? You know, it's very clear that he's the killer, but the, I think sort of the point of it is that rather than this being a story of figuring out who the culprit was, it is a story in which sort of Victorian culture as a whole is dissected. And that time period leading up to the 20th century and how how there's all of these incidents kind of echo into the 20th century Mm -hmm. that are sort of compacted. It's the... I'm probably using the word wrong, but it's the microcosm, right? Like mm-hmm. it's this horrific but comparatively small event that then has this huge echo. Yeah, it's beautifully orchestrated. Like the whole thing, it, it's, I mean, I said this at the beginning, like we we discussed in V for Vendetta how dense Alan Moore's work was for that piece. And this like just, it was like, hold my beer. It was like how, <laughs> the, how this piece turned out where it's even more dense than the other one, and again, like you're right, he he did so much research. Yes, uh, um, around ju- not even just Jack the Ripper in general. Like he he nailed the actual exact ways that these women were murdered because mm-hmm. they've got it documented. They've got photos of it. They've I mean, it's very well documented. And so he used all of that as inspiration for you know artwork and kind of driving the story. But there's so much other stuff like the mysticism of the Mason culture yes. that is he's just steeped in it, and it's everywhere. And like there's an entire section, I don't even, somewhere in like the the first third or maybe even into the two two thirds of the way in, where he and his driver are just going around London talking about all the different yes. like symbolic buildings and like pylons and stuff that are in London right, that are all... about the Masons. Yeah, like... <laughs> which is it's one of those interesting things because I know you know I'm I'm always a little bit skeptical as far as like. You know, there's there's a tendency in like ancient aliens and stuff like that where they say, and if you look at this site and this site, they form a perfect triangle. And the bum, truth bum, is, bum. you can do that with like everything. You know, right? like I've seen people take, you know, they take a pentagram and they lay it over like a children's playground Everywhere. or something like that. And it's <laughs> yeah. like, oh my god, <laughs> Satan! Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, but it's it's. I mean, there's like it's like over 20 pages yeah, of him just going like and here and like it's so much dialogue. It's and it's really just monologue because he's just basically like talking to himself and the driver is kind of stuck with him. Yeah. <laughs> Poor old Netley. God. So he's just like, yep, whatever you say, dude. <laughs> he's kind of like um, he reminds me of like Gollum and a uh, little bit like uh, um, Renfield and, Drac- and Dracula. Oh, absolutely. Know, like the kind of henchman guy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's like this poor little minion who's like not a good person, but is just completely in over his depth. Um, yeah. Yeah. Because like... he's the one taking him from spot to spot to pick up these women to murder them. So he's fully complicit with what's going on. It's interesting. He's deeply, I think that is, so he's a, he might be our first character to talk about. Yeah, let's do Um, it. So Netley, the coachman, you know, the whole thing, um, obviously 19th century uh, Britain was extremely class divided, right? Oh, yeah. And something (laughs) that I think is done pretty well in this is how, 
even like levels of mutual communication could become difficult despite you know like everyone is speaking english they have accents and dialects but it's not mutually you know it's not mutually unintelligible right right um but that netley is sort of the way he is kind of seduced into being uh sir gull's transport and also guide to taking mm-hmm. out to, he's he's like the hunting hound you know yeah it's kind of creepy <laughs> um it, and it is because you know he is a working class guy like he knows how to knows identify to the women how to speak to them you know and like figure yeah. out what areas they're he can pass as one of them because he is one of them yeah, yeah and that he's he's seduced because uh sir william gull says hey i could make you a mason you know i could i could yeah. give you one of the elite access to this part of the world um yeah and that's a very interesting um you know aspect of 19th century london especially i was reading a little bit about the history of of gentlemen's clubs not the euphemism oh god but yeah. uh, and how it's those were a doozy yeah well <laughs> still are yeah well yeah <laughs> um but that a lot of it had to do with getting around class barriers was that like absolutely um, there you know there was there was a lot of rules as far as like who you could socially interact with and under what circumstances and one of the biggest yeah. advantages um for men of these gentlemen's clubs of various you know be, ah, the royal you know the national geographic society or whatever <laughs> um was literally that by joining it you could then get access to a whole bunch of different um people you know, and to a certain yeah. extent, that is still uh, true with like you know more more casual like pseudo Masonic style. You know, there's like a Oddfellows Hall near uh, near yeah. where I used to live, and uh, yeah, you know, like a lot of the when I've talked to people who are members, you know, a lot of these groups are not as famous and, and are a lot more low key than the Freemasons. Um, mm-hmm. But one of the things that people talk about is like. Well, if you if you join a fraternity, then one of the big advantages is like yep. if you need a plumber, there's the fraternity yep. plumber. You know, if yep. you need an electrician, if you need a lawyer, if you need an X, Y, or Z, you have. If you this, need a job going yep. out of college. You can hook up with people who were from the fraternity or who have family who are from the fraternity. Yeah. yeah totally. I feel like today's kind of version of I mean Freemasons are still around, but right. it's not nearly the same kind of vibe as it is. Like as it was in the 1800s, or really much later, I feel like political spheres are very much the kind of replacement. Mm. Like if you're getting into politics, it's not what you know as much as who you know. Yeah. You know, like it's that inner circle of people that you will do well depending on who you can get in the door with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and it's very similar vibe where it's tends to be a little bit more elitist, <laughs> right? And it's kind of a boys club. <laughs> well, yeah. So, yeah. So I feel like that's kind of a similar setup to today's kind of format. But I, I you know, I honestly don't know much about the Masons because I'm not a dude. <laughs> yeah. So. <laughs> well, that's the, you know, that's the whole interesting thing is that, you know, uh, I think probably maybe up to about the mid-century, right? Like the Masons had done a very good job of keeping all the you know keeping all the secrets together right and yeah. then there was this big explosion of uh, conspiracy literature and kind of occult literature so much um, so much conspiracy theories around the masons which is fascinating yeah and of course you know eventually like a lot of this stuff was kind of exploded and it was it was less that these guys were the secret elite controlling the world and 
more just a bunch of dudes who like to wear fezes and play dress up. <laughs> <laughs> but as we all know, there is an invisible map on the back of the Declaration of Independence. Yes. That was spearheaded <laughs> right, by, by the Masons. The Masons yeah. You heard it here, folks. <laughs> We gotta get yeah, Nicholas so Cage on this. Nicholas Cage, if you're listening, I believe you. Hashtag I believe. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yes. No, that is not true. Conspiracy debunked. <laughs> Slash never really existed. Yeah. I don't know where you got that from. <laughs> yeah. But. Um, oh my gosh. Yeah. So. So yeah, it's a it's a big expansive story, um, but yeah, yeah. Netley is kind of our our first little character to talk about um, mm-hmm. as far as like his level of complicity in the in the murders. Um, and then I I would say obviously like our big uh, protagonists are the four women, well the five women actually because one gets mm-hmm. one gets killed on accident, gets... right? Yeah. But uh, something you know I really appreciate as far as the research goes is that it's a very unflinching. Um, depiction of what life was like for uh, poverty-stricken w- women in Whitechapel. The answer yeah. is rough. It was not fun. Horrific. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like. Uh, yeah. Absolutely abysmal living situation. Um. Yeah. It's pretty grotesque. Yeah. Like the you know the one that's always very striking is that uh, there was uh, I can't remember what it's called exactly, but it's like one of the cheapest sleeping conditions was literally there would be a bench you would sit on and then they would tie a rope. They strap you to yeah, it so you don't stra- fall so you off. Don't fall off and that cost like a Wild. penny. And that's, uh, you know, that's very bleak. Is a, I, I think it's a, a Dark Annie's story, I think, starts with her waking up in mm-hmm. one of those. And it's just like, oh, my God. Yeah. Um, Can you imagine being strapped to a bench with like eight people surrounding you and you have to sit and sleep at the same time? And, yeah. and also, like, these are people who don't have access to really a house, essentially, slash don't bathe. Right. Yeah. Slash they're, don't have good hygiene yeah, because they don't bathe. Hygiene like, level is very limited, right? Like, that's oh. that's one of the plot points, I think, with Annie is that she gets into yeah. a vicious fist fight with somebody over a bar of soap. Yeah. Know? She's like, bitch, get off my soap. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. Like, and you know, it's like yeah, that was a big that was a big deal and a big resource. Um, something mm-hmm. more talks about a little bit in the afterward is the the effort to depict the women involved as accurately as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, sympathetically, I think it's pretty pretty uh, pretty clear in the story where that surprise surprise as weird of guys Alan Moore is, he's not rooting for the dude ripping people apart. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, I guess he's not a sociopath. Yeah, That's a good thing, I guess. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, one of the things he talks about is, like, tendencies. How This this killing, right, um, the, mm-hmm. the Ripper killings, they're sort of famous as one of the first big sensationalized crime sprees, right? And like, serial killing, yeah. Yeah. A really, really big deal. Um, and that it almost immediately it had a presence in pop culture. And that there's... So there was this tendency to depict the the women who were the Ripper's victims as like super sexy ladies with you ladies know ladies of the night yeah like the <laughs> their plunging necklines and stuff yeah. like that to have the this, bosoms did you look yeah, at the did bosoms you look at the, all right so she's getting <laughs> stabbed but look at them bosoms. bosoms look incredible <laughs> you know and that then. 
and then there's you know sort of the reverse that a lot a lot of these women uh, were approaching middle age. You know, many of many of them were in their forties, um, and of course had pretty hard lives. Um, a l- yeah, I think literally Rough. all of them were at burnout levels of alcohol addiction, which was just oh, ubiquitous. Yeah. Yeah, because that's um, the only thing they could afford. Yeah, <laughs> was drink well, and it's and some random scraps at the bar, right? And that they'd rather pay for that than a bench to sleep on, right? Yeah, <laughs> and it's and it is that classic, you know, problem of poverty of if your life is so unbearably awful, and then you also haven't been, you know, raised in an environment that's like. Think carefully about what your next choice is because it doesn't fucking your body matter. is a temple. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so yeah. so more talks a little bit about how there's you know then there's sort of the reverse tendency to be like oh they were all you know hideous old hags, um, but that the truth is that like well this wasn't a you know a collection of beauty pageant models or something right. Like this that. is not Victoria's Secret models <laughs> yeah. era guys. Like but, yeah, well and that. These women were, you know, they they were sex workers. So part of their, like, part of how they earned their money was to be as attractive as possible in the circumstances they were in. And as yeah. a consequence, I think the artist Eddie Campbell does a fairly good job as far as like they're not. I I personally, I don't know how you feel about it, but I didn't feel like they were overly sexualized, or at least not, you know, like that. It what happens to them is not glamorized uh, for sure. No, absolutely <laughs> not. No, I I totally agree. I think that for all all you fellow uh, crime lovers out there who who have actually taken the time to look up what the Jack the Ripper photos actually look like, that would be I'm I'm one of those people. (laughs) Um, He did a really good job because it's like obviously the photos are black and white. Mm -hmm. So you kind of have to extrapolate a little bit about the clothing color and kind of patterning and style. But overall, Uh, real quick interjection. Mm -hmm. Did you have a color copy or a black and white copy? Oh, I had a color copy for the comic, but I'm talking about the actual photographs. Yeah, okay, okay, yeah. That, yeah, did you have, do you have a black and white copy? I have copy? a black and white copy. Ooh, yeah. I had the colorized version, baby. Ooh, um, okay. Yeah, interesting, it was, I think it, it was remastered, so I, I forgot that it wasn't originally in color. Um, But yeah, so he did a good job, mm-hmm. like, capturing the actual um Ripper crime scenes, which are God awful horrific. Oh, like yeah. it's just it looks like a slaughterhouse in a photo. It's pretty rough. Um I think he did a really, really good job though of keeping true to that. And I feel like a lot of like you were saying, a lot of Jack the Ripper stories, they definitely glamorize it. Um, especially since we they never caught Jack the Ripper. So there's so much like kind of mysticism secrecy around like who done it yeah and so they definitely glam that up because it's like such a ridiculously crazy story that it's kind of easy to to glamorize that yeah that well and I, I have a sort of um philosoph- philosophical bent on that mm. that i think there's kind of this desperation with with something as horrible as that to kind of make it make sense you know, mm-hmm. and to try like, and I think from hell is actually kind of a victim of this too, is that even though Moore is fairly blunt about thinking, yeah, I have no idea if William Gull did it or not. There's some evidence, but probably not, <laughs> you know, Yeah. but that like the killer have having to have been some sort of, you know, almost supernatural mastermind, some secret, yeah. you know, powerful, dangerous dude as opposed mm-hmm. to like, or he might have just been some gross little creep 
You know, like Very it possible. Wasn't, it wasn't, sadly, it wasn't that hard to get away with something like that. Yeah, you it's know? hard to have any sort of trail when forensics was, yeah, you know, forensics abysmal. is nothing. Um, yeah. The London police force is like only a few decades old and mostly made up of, you know, basically thugs with billy clubs to keep people in line like yeah it's like bill i mean you're talking like kind of late stages of billy boys and stuff i mean it's like yeah um and also i feel like for you know i don't know how true this is but from the vibes that i've gotten from just depictions slash just kind of recollections of what it was like in Whitechapel at that time mm-hmm. it's like the cops nobody cared enough to look into it yeah like, because nobody wanted to be in Whitechapel because it was just hell. Like, it was just such such chaos all the time that everybody's like, oh, well, right. yet another sex worker has died. <laughs> well, right. That's, that's, you know, that's yeah. one of the things that people talk about um, that's referenced in From Hell is that there had actually been a couple of other, like, truly horrifying uh, murders of women mm-hmm. in the area. And there's some speculation like, oh, was this the same guy? You know, the methodology isn't quite right, but they are like mm-hmm. these pretty, pretty nasty uh, pieces I've of work. I've been like early on of somebody's career. If they were the same person, it could have been like they were testing the waters maybe. Yeah, there's a lot of conspiracy yeah, around that there's, too. Yeah, there's a lot of speculation <laughs> about that. Um, yeah. But yeah, so that's something I I think that's done quite well is um, emphasizing the humanity of everyone involved um, yeah. while still being very unflinching, right? Yes. Like, you know, all, all all of the five victims, I think, come across as very, very human um, mm-hmm. at the same time as you see, you know, certain aspects of, of their character incredibly unsa- unsavory. Like, yeah. you know, Dark Annie is a violent alcoholic. Right? Extremely <laughs> you know? addicted. And, uh, yeah, you know, absolutely. Mary Kelly actually winds up uh, making making kind of an interesting decision towards the end of the story. Um, she's yes. probably the closest thing we have to a secondary uh, protagonist besides the Ripper himself. And uh, yeah, she kind of is the recurrent uh, with the inspector. Is it? Is it uh, Abernathy? Yeah, inspector oh, Abernathy. I think so. I thought it was Aberlean or Aberline. I can't remember how to pronounce it, but maybe oh, maybe I made it's it Aberlean. Yeah, I might be thinking of somebody else. Um, I am almost. I think positive. it's Aberlean. Yep, I think you're right. But yeah, so his kind of, which I did want to kind of touch on him in a second, but. With her, her character is, you know, I think the, I don't know if smartest one is the right word for her character, but she's like, she lasts the longest out of everybody. (laughs) Yes. And that's, that's so interesting, you know, is that, so in, um, I guess we can just jump into it because we're doing spoilers, right? So in the comic uh, version, uh, Mary gets out. She yeah. does not actually get killed. It's another yeah. it's another woman. I can't remember the character's name. Yeah, she like was sleeping at her place and right. they the Jack the Ripper guy didn't realize but that she it was the... not her. Yeah. yeah. And that I think there's something so interesting because with this with this story, um we have a when we're in um Sir Gull's perspective, we're doing a very classic Alan Moore thing a lot of the time. Which is that his mind is kind of unstuck in time, that he yeah. goes kind of backwards and forwards in his perception of his own life 
and then eventually in this kind of psychedelic 2000 like almost 2001 you know space odyssey yeah can we like talk yeah, about that talk for about a second that? yeah because that part okay it had been a hot second since i'd read the graphic novel Ooh. and so i had completely forgotten that it's a literal time jump into like present day or yes. really it, present day we're talking 80s 90s right, right? Yeah, yeah. was when this was written so there's a literal time jump and it's a dude from 1880s who's jumping into the 1980s yeah and he's like completely confused and we're like well yeah dude it's a hundred <laughs> years later yeah. like what what were your thoughts on that style i think choice? it's i think it's very interesting because we've so we've been talking about you know not glamorizing the killings right and i feel like this is as close <laughs> right. as we get to a yeah. little bit glamorizing the killer um yeah, I think so. It's it's a classic Alan Moore thing. Like it shows up a lot. Um, most fa- I think the most famous incident of him doing it was uh, Doctor Manhattan in Watchmen. You know, he experiences yes. time simultaneously. Yeah, he's just bouncing um, around constantly. Yeah, and I think uh, I think Alan Moore has openly said that these you know a lot of these sequences were inspired by the various psychedelics he's used in his life. I was gonna say that's <laughs> drugs talking you know? is what that is because that's what it felt what? like reading it. I was like. We're Someone's on drugs. I What's can see happening? The future. <laughs> Said the highest British man ever. <laughs> but, yeah, uh, I can see that. Yeah. So, um, anyways, uh, yeah, there, I think it's very interesting that there's this sort of cosmic aspect to Gull's behavior. Um, I know there's, you know, more sites that there is some basis in the psychological analysis of uh, murderous psychopaths, like that some of them have described this moment, you know, when they ah, they chop somebody up and they have this like weird psychic experience at the height of mm-hmm. that, um, yeah. which, you know, to me is just, oh, it's because he's off his freaking rocker yeah yeah either on drugs or severely unstable and is having like some sort of euphoric event because of adrenaline because of serotonin levels spiking because of drugs kicking in you know (laughs) there's a lot going on chemically there whether it's natural or not right but that (laughs) so within within this version we kind of embrace the idea that gull could have these bizarre sort of transcendental psychic experiences and that he mm-hmm. kind of casts backwards and forwards in time. He winds up inspiring. It wasn't Francis Bacon. I can't remember the name of the artist, um, but he, oh, he goes yeah, backwards and remember. forwards in time and winds up inspiring this kind of horrifying demonic painting. Um, you know, this this artist in the, I think in the early 1800s sees his spirit. Um mm-hmm. And that he kind of manifests as this weird, gross little critter when he's in the in the psychic. Yeah, well, like he's like all scaly and yeah. Like, um, it's really hard to describe. It's it is kind of a psychedelic trip in the middle of, of the book. But yeah, and it happens yeah. a couple times. But, yeah, uh, well, it's and it, it's so shocking. Um, I think it's at at one like the first time you really see it is there's a sequence after he has killed maybe the second or third person. And yeah. he, he holds his hands up and suddenly he is staring at a skyscraper. Yeah. And <laughs> there's another time where he's looking into somebody's uh, flat in 1800s. Right. And then 
like looks in and it's two people sitting on a couch watching a television. Yeah. So like it's weird, well, weird a, stuff going on. So I know, it, you know, in the afterwards, uh, more talks about how a lot of those are inspired by people's real life, you know, claimed ghost sightings. And I think oh, okay. that because, you know, it's I mean, it's fairly common to see like an older gentleman, you know, an older Victorian gentleman. That's like. It's always Victorian. Guys. <laughs> right. That was when all the they ghosts They got nothing better up. to do. <laughs> you know, the Victorian afterlife was very boring. Like Super boring. They had nothing better going on. You died on. in the I Middle Ages. You got to have like weird parties with rabbits. But, <laughs> um, but yeah. Uh, yeah, so so I think there's something there as far as like the Ripper killings kind of embedding themselves like that that the event itself becomes part of the mythology of the city um mm -hmm. and i think that's very in a mundane uh you know skeptical view i think that's very true um, absolutely is that it like, still is resonates with people today and this was you know yeah oh yeah this was, this was more than a century ago um at this <laughs> exactly. point and that uh you know there's there's something very interesting about how even as London has, you know, it remains this this center of trade, you know, all these different things. There's still this very embedded aspect of the idea of like the the horror boiling underneath, and how that might reflect on all other aspects of society. Um, yeah. Because I think that is, you know, I think that is a big part of the story is that the Ripper killings are not. It's oh, it's difficult to articulate, but essentially that the the Ripper killings are a manifestation of a whole bunch of other things that are going yes. on. You know, yes. like um, you sent me offline, you sent me that uh, last podcast on the left. Yes. <laughs> Which is Shout out to last podcast on the are, left because they, are... they have an amazing series on specifically Jack the Ripper. I think it's like five or six episodes long. Right. It's incredible. They do their research. And they, Hats off to you. And they they reference uh, From Hell a lot. <laughs> but uh, Yes, yeah, they do. They're quite funny for such a grim subject. Um, oh my God, they're hysterical. I love them. But... Uh, yeah, like they, you know, they reference the idea that like Whitechapel was actually one of those places that was kind of, when you look at it, it's the perfect environment for this kind of murderer. Yeah, um, but totally. But there are other like, you know, it's sort of the nexus of like class and misogyny and, you know, all this poverty and stuff like that. And then, and then the role of the media, the sensationalist, you know, sensationalist newspapers like yeah. that, we haven't really touched on that yet, but the title of the story is From Hell, right? Mm -hmm. um, which is taken from one of the letters allegedly. I think it's the one that people speculate is most likely to have been sent by the killer. Yeah, because there were a whole bunch of letters yeah. that were from a whole Hundreds. bunch of crazies. And one of, well, so <laughs> yeah. that's, you know, that's one of the things that, that happens in the story is he has this this sequence where you see like, this what was clearly this huge cross section of uh, London society that mm -hmm. was people writing into the newspapers saying, "I did it! I chopped yeah. those people up," you know, yeah. and how it's so it's such a strange and kind of awful you know phenomenon for people to take on the role like not not just like you know role playing in a video game as a bad guy mm -hmm. right or something like that yeah but that when there's an active crime going on that, that still happens today oh yeah the amount the amount of crank calls that come in when they're saying we have a hotline or a tip line if you have any information 
the amount of people that call in, it's nuts. Yeah, and it's there's all these times nuts. when, like, the you know, the real killers will call in and kill yeah, and, and be help. like, hey, I, I did it, I did it, I'm the person. And they're like, yeah, sure you are, buddy. <laughs> that like, actually just happened oh, no. recently. The, the shootings that happened in the New York subway yes. that just happened. They actually, I think they caught somebody who called and assisted with the investigation oh, and it was them that wow. <laughs> that just happened yeah yeah so it's yeah. this whole phenomenon like i yeah i think it was um i remember somewhere talking about like one of the the first people to be confirmed to have written a ripper hoax letter was actually a woman interesting which i think is really something very interesting going on there <laughs> like, yeah but yeah so the so the story is called from hell and that so that's a lot of it is how like the whole of society is kind of participating in these killings, even though it's really just these two guys actually doing it. Yeah. And there's a there's some interesting stuff with the From Hell letter itself specifically. Like if if I remember right, there's there is speculation in the so the way it's explained in the comic is that uh, Sir William Gull narrates the letter to Netley because there's all these mm. weird spelling errors. And that, you know, he says, blah, 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 I'm Jack the Ripper, blah, blah, blah. Except he doesn't call yeah. himself Jack the Ripper. But um, no. but uh, there is some speculation that the person who write, wrote it might have actually been educated and attempting to appear uneducated. Um, like yeah. one of the big hints that this person is uh, faking it is that they wrote knife, K-N-I-F. And that right. that's not actually the kind of error someone who's semi-literate makes. It would have been N-I-F. It would have been N-I-F or, or N-I-F. N-Y-F or something. You yeah, know, like, yeah. The like, K wouldn't mm, have come in at all. Right. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's a that's all very very interesting part of the story, and I think that is like that is why it is called from hell. You know, yeah. is that that's like the nexus of it. Yeah, and then on top of, I mean, I know that there's a lot of kind of conspiracy theories around what type of person was Jack the Ripper, and I know that just with what you could see from the actual crime scenes, how precise the brutality was on the women's bodies because there was a lot of like removing organs and a lot of incisions and things like that where they're like the the normal like person would not know where to look for these organs. And also I think they say the – I think it's either the liver or the kidney – I think it's the liver. It's like it's really hard to locate and it's yes. really hard to extract without it just breaking. Yes. So there's like things about about the way that the murders were done. It's like there's no way that it just a kind of layman's person just did this and didn't make a complete mess out of it. <laughs> right. I mean, they did make a mess, <laughs> make but it was like a, a really, yeah, but like a really yeah, deliberate mess. And same thing with like removing the whole, like the sex organs and everything. I mean, that's very hard to do. And it's delicate work. So the the kind of conspiracy that it was some sort of doctor or surgeon, right? Or you know, I think veterinarian was thrown around. Right. But, you know, or animal even anatomy, a, uh, even a butcher is, might have, or known. a butcher, yeah, um, somebody who's well versed with kind of stripping carcasses. So, <laughs> yeah. So my my personal favorite of the crackpot uh, Jack the Ripper theories is uh, I think it was Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was the first one to famously suggest Jill the Ripper. Uh, striking a blow for feminism but, hey, uh, ladies can kill gross ways too Woo! but the, yeah. the speculation that um if the if the murderer was a midwife it would actually track Ooh. with a lot of things 
That's that, a medical like, background. Yeah. You know, she would, yeah. she would have a medical background. She would be somebody who it would not be unusual for people to see walking around covered in blood. Um, and yeah. And she'd be. This is Probably true. know all of the victims. They would all probably trust her. Probably not actually the case, but a fun twist. But a <laughs> fascinating thing to talk about. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> as much as I love talking about Jack Rupert, <laughs> this will kind of mosey on back to our actual topic right, yeah. today. Um, but, yeah, I I guess I, I want to switch gears a little bit mm-hmm. and go back to the inspector. Um, yes, Aberlene. Yeah, Aberlene. So his character, I am curious to know, like, what your thoughts are on him because he's Interesting character for sure. Yeah, well, so so it might be interesting to talk about him, especially in the compare and contrast, because he is very different in the adaptation. Drastically different, yeah. Um, but I think let's save it. Let's save it for a compare and let's contrast save him. because yeah. I think that's the yeah. biggest point of comparison. Yeah, yeah. I think for the sure. one last little piece I'd love. You know, we could talk for days and days about this comic. Um, I know, but I do feel. In the comic, I have to mention my very favorite scene, which is uh, Sir William Gull going to visit the Elephant Man. Yes, let's talk about that. So I I have always had a fascination <laughs> with with the Elephant Man. Um, mm-hmm. I believe I always screw this up. His real name was John Merrick, but people called him Joseph Merrick, or is it the other way around? Oh gosh! I know there I was think... a screw up with his name. Oh my goodness, I can't remember, but yes, you're right. It's it's like call it being called one and not and it was actually the other and I Yes. Okay, his, <laughs> I'm his real name was Joseph Merrick. Joseph, and, and they called he him John. He was sometimes called John Merrick and then his his Got freak it. show name was the Elephant Man. Got it. But yeah, so just in case you don't know who this is, uh, if you're listening, um, he was kind of a minor celebrity, weirdly enough, um, in mm-hmm. 19th century Britain. Um, he was a man born with these very, very unusual, uh, very distinct uh, uh, deformities. Um, mm-hmm. That, like, he, he, you can look at, he was a very heavily photographed individual, which was kind of unusual for the time. But he was, an, he was, was very, kind of an anomaly. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, but, you know, so he, it's, easy to see him as kind of frightening um because he has this sort of very bulbous head one of his arms is much larger than the other um but of course his his physical condition actually meant that he was not dangerous to anyone and also no as a person he appears to have been like incredibly sweet and gentle and obviously knew what it was like to be horribly mistreated um, because yeah. of his appearance, yeah. But yeah, so he was he was kind of discovered, quote unquote, um, and then uh, you know he spent some time working in a freak show, but eventually got to this point where he was sort of a minor celebrity and was actually friends with one of the members of the one of the extended members of the royal family um, was a correspondent of his. Yeah, um, yeah, I think you're right. And he did, you know, he like wrote poetry and stuff like that. And of course, physicians, you know, were really fascinated with him. He, he lived a very mm-hmm. lonely life, as you would expect. But yeah, so there's this really great scene where uh, Sir William Gull, Gull goes to meet him. And the two of them hit it off immediately. And it's mm-hmm. this it's this interesting humanizing moment uh, where Gull, Gull is talking to Merrick and, you know, when he meets him for the first time, Gull says, Mr. Merrick, you are the most horrifying creature I've ever seen. It is my great honor yeah. to meet you. And Merrick just yeah. laughs and says, you know, 
most people either freak completely out or yep. pretend I'm normal. And I'm it's yeah, so just, refreshing like, to have somebody <laughs> like just acknowledge that I'm weird looking and then yeah. want to be my friend. But so that, you know, the two of them like have a conversation and in the scene that utterly breaks my heart, Gull tells Merrick about how um, it's Ganesha or Ganesha. I, I can never get. It's Ganesha. Ganesha I think. Um, yeah. the, it's the elephant the Indian, goddess. Yeah, yeah. The Indian god with the, the head of an elephant. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, te- he tells Merrick about that. And he says, you know, if you had been born in India, you would have been worshipped. And then he yeah. leaves, and there's this wonderfully sad scene of Merrick sitting alone, and he just says, worshipped, because his face yeah. is all mad. Yeah, it's it's good stuff. <laughs> Always breaks my heart. Yeah, it is an incredible scene, and that's the only time that you see that character. Yeah, well, you so you briefly, when, when Gull is doing the first killing, mm-hmm. you very briefly see him because Gull takes the first victim by Merrick's house. Right, because he he That's believes right. in the the ritual of asking Ganesha for for blessing before you undertake a great journey, um, so that Merrick kind of plays that that sort of spiritual role in Gull's weird twisted mind, you know. Yeah, his whole ritualistic and very mysticism aspect of his work, it's just everywhere. Yes, it's everywhere, and it's in length. I mean, he goes on these crazy, like, pontificating, like, monologues in great, (laughs) great length. It's intense, and it's all around the spiritualistic kind of sense that he has with the Freemasons, and then a lot of other religions are kind of folded in there, and it's incredible literature that that Alan Moore has put together for this character. It's so dense. Yeah. No, it's I, nuts. I loved it. It was it was good <laughs> yeah. stuff. Terrifying. <laughs> Absolutely terrifying. And you're right. And with like the elephant man and um, I think like Buffalo Bill and like there's a whole bunch of other cameos that he just kind of spatters, which again, yes. like, like <laughs> long story short, we've rolled all the way back to the amount of research that Alan Moore has done um, oh, for yeah. this particular book. Uh, it's my just boy Oscar Wilde astounding. has a very brief cameo. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Oscar Being Wilde's a real also twit, in there. I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's impressive. It's it's amazing. And I feel like just looking at like the art style again and also the amount of dialogue that is in this. I mean, just, I, I keep coming back to like people think that, you know, it's a comic book. It's for kids. Right. And it's and we we talked about this in V for Vendetta too. Like these are literature. Like there's so much like monologue and writing and context and afterwards and like there's so much writing in a graphic novel like i've it's mind-blowing honestly and i think what's so interesting about it is you know it's always the question of medium right Mm -hmm. and i think i've at this point in my life i am solidly in the camp of there's there's no such thing as a medium just being for one group of people you know yeah for sure. Um, and that even though, yeah, you know, comics are wonderful for children because, of course, if you're learning to read, just having little dialogue mm-hmm. boxes and nice big pictures, that's very yeah. nice. It's um, easy to digest. Yeah. But that then, like, within this, you see how the combination of the dialogue and the captioning and the imagery is so mm-hmm. specific, you know, very. and that it really wouldn't work in, like, a novel, 
right or at least it wouldn't work the same way like not in the same way at all there's yeah. a, you know the first image we see i've got i've got my copy right here i'm opening up so the first image we see in the prologue is of a rotting seagull carcass on the beach. Yeah, they're talking on the beach. You know, yeah, you can't get that kind of imagery, I, really. I, I mean, I think, so you could, right? Like, you could write, there's a dead seagull and it's lying there. But I think it just would not, it doesn't have the same impact as having the dead seagull in the foreground as the two characters are talking and we can't really make out mm-hmm. what they're saying and then we're getting in on their conversation and... You know, yeah. all all this stuff. Yeah, the visual aspect is nuts. <laughs> yeah, so I think it's and yes, don't don't let your kids read this. <laughs> no. This is not child safe, my friends. This is, I this mean, is dark, gritty and violent and just messed up. You know, yeah, yeah like don't yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't know who would buy a comic called From Hell for their eight year old or whatever. But... <laughs> uh I'm listening I I'm thinking Julie <laughs> Julie would do it. <laughs> Looking at you, Julie. <laughs> Dark and stormy like our souls. Yeah. That's our joke. Um, yeah, it's incredibly dense, which, I mean, I'm not surprised. It's Alan Moore. It's always dense. That his That's like his MO. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's just beautiful work. I, I definitely cannot say enough good things about it. And um, I know we could continue but to say what good if things about it. Instead, <laughs> we shifted from incredibly dense to... Incredibly dense, but with a different meaning of that word. <laughs> I was going to say, <laughs> dense in the wrong direction. <laughs> all right. All right. Well, let's transition into the film adaptation. So I'll give a quick little synopsis here, and then we'll get cracking all on right. that. All right. So Inspector Fred Aberlein, played by Johnny Depp, is determined to track down Jack the Ripper in Victorian East London. As well as his sergeant, Peter Godley, played by Robbie Coltrane, Aberlein is helped on the case by visions he has while high on opium and adding urgency to his investigations is unfortunate Mary Kelly, played by Heather Graham, a potential Ripper victim with whom the inspector is falling in love. (laughs) Okay. Okay, so, uh, slightly different. <laughs> Mr. Johnny Depp is a, uh, he's hooked on the dragon, or chasing the dragon, he, as you were. Yes. <laughs> um, and has visions. Ooh, twists. <laughs> okay, so, lay it on me, Dan. What, uh... How did you feel? I know that you had never seen the movie I, until recently. <laughs> I, I don't have it handy, but I remember I was watching it, and I, I sent you a message that said something like, I just wrote in all caps, this is the worst movie I have ever seen. You know? <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, boy. So, oh, boy. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I, I remember I... Before I watched the movie, I, you know, I was clicking around and I saw, oh, here's the trailer for it. And sometimes I like checking those out, right, to sort of see how they were (laughs) marketed. And Uh I was just like, oh, no. Oh, no. Because it's like, you know, it's showing like Victorian London and playing this cool music. And it's like, there was a killer on the loose and only one man could stop him. And it's Johnny Depp being like, oh, I'm getting visions, you know. I'm Johnny Depp. Yeah, I'm Johnny Depp. <laughs> and then, um, you know, there's there's this refrain in, in the book, right, in the comic where Sir William Gull keeps saying stuff about how he says, 
together you and I have given birth to the 20th century. Mm-hmm. And he says, you know, he yeah. says that and the wonderful Ian Holm says that in the trailer. Uh, and then it's a shot of Johnny Depp pulling out a revolver and saying, you're not going to live to see the 20th century, mate. You know? yeah. <laughs> it's just like... <laughs> So we're going Tonal We're shift. going from <laughs> the source material being this slow, somber, grim, cerebral analysis to sexy mm-hmm. psychic detective Johnny Depp Ooh, is trying his he's Depp. got a race against time to save a lady. <laughs> also his cheekbones are on point. They absolutely are. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Uh, well, why, why don't you why don't you start us off? What are what are some of your thoughts on this one? Because I think you've made my opinions on the film abundantly clear. <laughs> I don't know, Dan. I don't know if I have the full scope of how much you hated this movie. <laughs> Tell me how you really feel. Uh, okay, so I actually saw the movie first before I read the graphic novel, mm-hmm. and I had seen the movie back. I think like early college so a hot second ago Mm. it was a while ago it hadn't been out for that long and i was like oh johnny depp he's cute and i was like this is a really interesting take on jack the ripper not realizing what this was based off of was actually not just jack the ripper in you know a a fanfic version (laughs) if you will but it's it's actually from a really incredible piece and so now you know having seen both sides um it it abysmally falls short (laughs) um yeah it's just so 2000s i think that's the only thing i can think of to to describe what it is like there are there are scenes that are beautifully shot and it's obviously like cinematically there are some really cool shots and um some cool features of you know they've referenced that johnny depp can have visions which will (laughs) we'll break that down don't worry (laughs) yeah you know, the scenes of him seeing these snippets are, it's kind of a cool visualization. And then, you know, it by itself, it's a kind of interestingly quirky rendition on mm. Jack the Ripper by itself. But in comparison, really, to... Having the same title as the comic is probably why I hate it so much. Like, loose. otherwise, I would... It's loose, my friends. Yeah, other, yeah, otherwise, I would probably be like, oh, it's kind of a it's kind of a cheesy, you know, early aughts uh, uh, mystery thriller. Um, I guess yeah. one, we talked a little bit about this. One of the positive things I can say about it is it's a pretty dynamite cast. It is. It truly is. I have to admit, I've never been a huge uh, Johnny Depp fan. I can kind of take him or leave, leave him as a performer. Um, yeah. But Robbie Coltrane um, as, oh. his, as his... Hagrid! Yeah, Hagrid. Uh, oh, bless. As his yeah. kind of second in command. You know, he's... I love Robbie Coltrane. He's great. He he's, is a gem. Yeah, he's, he's wonderful. <laughs> I think he really... So this is what's funny is... Well, we, we can get into the comparisons more later, but I think mm-hmm. he... He reminds me a lot more of the Detective Aberline of the comic. I agree. Um, yes. But yeah, like I like yes, Robbie I Coltrane agree. as, you know, he's this big, you know, kind of tough little little bit of a thug, but a good guy deep down, you know. Um, yeah. Of course, the the highlight is uh, dear old, oh, dear Sir old Ian Sir Hall. Ian as, uh, as Sir Gull. bless. He mean Bilbo. stole. <laughs> he is mean. He is scary, mean Bilbo. Like 
yeah, it's intense. His character, he stole oh, it. Yeah. He stole the entire movie. Well, like every scene that he was in was just so good. And I get that they're so good. They're doing so they do a reveal with him in this film. You know, is is it is more yes, of a conventional This is a who done it. It's more of a conventional who done it mm-hmm. and um you know, this this is a detail of the real Sir William Gull is that he did suffer a stroke later in his life. Um, yes. Before the Ripper killings happened, and that's you know sort of the subject of speculation is did that you know affect that his mind? Um, yeah. Because I know it's noted in Moore's notes that like all all his biographies say it didn't really physically affect him that strongly, um, mm-hmm. and that in this movie he has a he has a problem with his arm. Yeah, so he wasn't able to do surgery anymore after his incident, so he now is strictly teaching because he wasn't able to perform surgeries accurately. Yes, yes. And then it's sort of this reveal that that when he's in, if I remember right, when he's in his murder mode, he can actually... Yeah, you know, well, it's just, it's because it's. <laughs> I don't know what else to call it. It's know, true, it's though. He, because that's like a big, you know, I noticed I was trying to pay attention to it the way you would with a whodunit, right? And yeah. I believe in this version, they often show Jack the Ripper, you know, they show like his hands, right? And they show him mm-hmm. using his left hand a lot. And that's the hand that Sir Ian Holmes' character can't move when, can't when use. he's in yeah. his, you know. Oh, I'm just nice little old Bilbo. I'm a good I'm old sweet Bilbo. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, he is. He is great. I thought he did. A, I thought he did a really good job of portraying the switch. You know, um, mm-hmm. between Sir William Gull. You know, just a nice old physician, someone who helps people. He actually helps the police at one point, being like, "Oh, I sure yeah. hope you catch Jack the Ripper." <laughs> Whoever that um, is. Arr. And then, of course, when he's finally <laughs> exposed. You you know, he and I think he does do a good job, too, with it. So it's a it's a beat that is taken from the comic is there's a point at which he's put on kind of, quote unquote, Masonic trial. Right. Is that like yes, they're covering the up and after all of the killings. Right, yeah. he's, he's been exposed and but they're going to cover it up. They're not going to let him go to a real, you know, a legal trial. But they the Masons put him on trial and he does his it's kind of like a dark inversion of like Atticus Finch. Or something a like that, bit. or, yeah. or uh, a little bit. Perry Mason, you know, like what are those? Big... Yeah, totally. So he's like standing in the courtroom and he's saying, "You people are all cowards. You know, you don't believe in blah 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 blah." I have done the, and halfway through, yeah. he just sort of trails off. Um, and that, that's a you know that's a moment in the comics too. Is that like, Gull really is losing it. Like there are moments that mental break, yeah, is totally there. Yeah, it's, and that there are these yeah. moments, you know, like you said, he has all these gigantic monologues, but then he has moments of inarticulacy. Mm-hmm. And yes. I think Sir Ian Holm does a great job of portraying that and having these like weird moments of pity, or at least that invoked like pity for the character, even though he's like, oh, he's an awful guy, but you still yeah. see like these moments of vulnerability and how like. There is something wrong with his brain, and that's kind of sad when it yeah. happens to anybody. Like, don't get me wrong. I'm not crying myself to sleep about it for Jack the <laughs> Ripper. But... Right. Interesting portrayal, yeah. for sure. 
And to kind of like cement the kind of demon switch, they have these crazy like all black contacts that they gave him to wear. Oh yeah! So it makes his eyes look real demony because all like all the color, like the iris, is completely covered. So it's just black and white, and like these big, very animalistic contacts that they put on him too. So they did, you know, he he had the look, he had the mannerisms, and he just nailed it. Like it was. Yeah, he was definitely hands down the best part of that film. Yeah. And unfortunately, unlike the comic where you get his character in predominantly the entire story, his character is really not. Yeah, it's very. Well, it is It is a true whodunit. Until the end. It is a true, you yeah, know. Until the end. We get little hints of this guy and then we find, oh, he's yeah, the one who Which is it. too bad because he was the best part about it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what, did you, what did you think of Heather Graham? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, uh, you who know, plays Mary Kelly in this? She plays Mary Kelly. She is the leading lady, as it were. Um, I mean, she was fine. Yeah, that's She's kind of how pretty. I feel. Too. <laughs> like, <laughs> I was just, I was just hoping maybe there was something I didn't see. <laughs> yeah, I mean, she. I don't know. I mean, it's you know. It's it's hard to tell, like, was it that she's just not very good at that particular character, like, portrayal, or was the writing not very good for what the, like, screenplay adaptation was, or, like, was it a combination of the two, or was she not jiving with the director, right. or, or Johnny Depp? I mean, there's so many reasons that maybe I just didn't feel as connected to her performance, but it's also, like, her accent was kind of, you know, yeah. subpar. She's not actually British, and she was trying to do kind of a Cockney, which is already hard enough. Yes, doing um, a, doing a Cockney. Cockney accent and not sounding ridiculous, you know, is yeah. like like when you are not you know from that area or, or haven't you know spent a lot of time like working with that dialect. Yeah, and also Johnny Depp is kind of your your partner. He is quite good with yes. accents, so it is kind of intimidating to have that be your kind of alternate. And his accents are just like. For the longest time, I thought he was British because everything I had seen him <laughs> right. into well, that, until a certain point, he had a British like accent. He's, not, he's so good at he's it. Not doing yeah, anything he's else, not. And it's just like, oh yeah, I talk like this, I'm Johnny Depp. Yeah, <laughs> he's just he's just perpetually like Captain Jack Sparrow for everything, yeah. and I I'm, I'm there for right. it. I think this was um, like right <laughs> as he was starting to really take off, right? Because he had. He had done Edward, obviously had done Edward Scissorhands. Scissorhands that was like a really big yeah. breakout. But this is like pre. Yeah, that was late nineties. This is pre Pirates, right? Like I feel like. Oh, totally. I feel like Pirates. Pirates, I think, came out. out like. I think Pirates came out like two thousand five or right. something. I so think, it's... or like two thousand five to seven. I think is when that came out. Yeah. Um. So this was earlier, but I mean, he did like Twenty One Jump Street when he was like in his twenties, mm. and that was you know. I think late eighties, early nineties, mm. I think. I think, or maybe nineties by that point. Um, so he'd been around for a while, but yeah, this is early, I think, for him. Right. Yeah. So I always think of like I think I feel He's like Pirates days. is when you know, Johnny he Depp is like ba bum, whatever, you know, whatever he wants to do, yeah. he's gonna do and they're gonna Get him yeah, whatever they that want. That was a huge turning point. You know. And yeah. then current events yeah, and happened, and now he's not getting Ooh, as much work. Not <laughs> so much nowadays. I know. I was actually I, I was actually a little cranky. I, I, had, I rented uh, a digital copy of the movie because I couldn't find a free version. Mm. And I was a little cranky because I was like, ugh, I don't really want to throw money at yeah. you right now. But- you know, there was other people who worked on that movie, so just, I will accept just this. Just hope that and... Robbie Coltrane is getting the getting the royalties. God bless. <laughs> I know, I know. Yeah, I mean, 
Johnny Depp, I think he did a pretty decent job with what he was given. Yeah. I'll say that. Yeah, I guess it's it's a very so I my feeling on the movie is that it is very much a Depp vehicle. Like I, I feel like they <laughs> yeah. they looked at yeah. this material and were thinking, Oh, okay, like this this would be a pretty good Johnny Depp take where it's Johnny You're good at playing a drug addict, yeah, right? right here. Where it's like he's he's kind of a troubled <laughs> sexy rock star, you know. He's so sexy. Those yeah. <laughs> uh kind of uh, a little yeah. little bit goth detective, you know, trying to trying to yes. save the day. I know Alan Moore famously said if he had that haircut in the real Victorian police he would have gotten beaten up. <laughs> like, he's a fop. You know? Like, we were just talking earlier about kind of the beautification of the Jack the Ripper series. This is kind of one of those that falls into that bucket. Um, It's very, like, they they got the grunge of Whitechapel, but nothing else. Right, yeah, I was going to say that the sets, I thought, looked great. But yeah. that then, costuming was beautiful. Um, mm-hmm. I I don't know how you felt about it, but uh, particularly the the women who are his victims, they mm-hmm. felt very they felt kind of arch to me. Like yeah. besides Mary Kelly, like it felt very much like oh, I'm the Victorian, you know, sex worker, blah blah blah. Like I'm basically a kinda parody character. Um, <laughs> yeah, as a it was kind of over the top. Yeah, as yeah. A, you know, as opposed to to focusing on making each of them feel very, very human instead of like just being sort of okay. This one gets killed, then this one gets killed. You know, there's this ratcheting up tension, and part of yeah. that is just the. I feel like part of that is the nature of. You can excuse it with it being the nature of film, that it's like okay, yes. we've got two hours to tell this story. Crank it in, and there's so much to cover. I I understand. That's a difficult task with Alan Moore pieces, but then it's like yet again going back to V for Vendetta. Yeah. They, they did can, it there. You, know, you can get the essence of it. Like yeah, it can be done. Um, I just it it feels like they really missed the mark on you know I I liked that they tried to do a whodunit. That's really fun from a film viewer mm-hmm. perspective. I like that aspect. I think and again they were really focusing on the Jack the Ripper side of it not so much the mason side of it which the comic book really covers that um the mason stuff is kind of a reveal in the film at the end yeah that it's like all this under underbelly stuff going on in the masons and yeah i feel like we're we're, we'll just jump into the comparison yeah because who cares about (laughs) (laughs) because this is really where the conversation is it's it's only interesting as far as the the comparisons go it's like exactly exactly so we're there so yeah i i feel like um because it's more of a whodunit keeping the mason kind of background it's it's hinted at until the last yeah. minute yeah until the very last minute they do that reveal helps be like okay not only was it a person that we've met previously and hadn't suspected maybe now we're finding out that it was sanctioned mm-hmm by the freemasons and the the royal family right. like there's all these uh, these other things going on that they start to slowly re- reveal that which i i like that aspect because it does kind of build that tension mm-hmm. but it it just the tone wasn't there and they i feel like because they made johnny depp's character have like this weird mysticism like can see the future shit like that kind of made it really dopey for yeah, me like i well, didn't really like I, so that. I, so we may as well get into this so johnny johnny depp plays um detective aberlene um mm-hmm. who's one of the protagonists of the comic as well and of course 
in the comic, yeah. he looks a lot more like Robbie Coltrane than Johnny Depp. He does. Like, Not quite as tall, yeah, he's but like yeah, this very portly. little British yeah. man. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah. something that I thought was very interesting and very true to life um, is that he's not great at his job um, in the comic version. Like, he's not Accurate. truly <laughs> awful, but it's like the the detective work was not that advanced at that right. time. Forensics was barely you know, there. Forensics yeah. barely existed. And that a lot of what his character is in the comic is about him basically being this like barely middle class you know started out working class has now become middle class guy facing Mm -hmm. something that is so out of his depth and that he has like even if he was you know like sherlock holmes level he wouldn't be able to put this together you know well on the level that's of how much is being backed up by very powerful systems in place there's no way that you are ever going to make any sort of headway when you've got the masons which is a class of elite upper crust folks that are all doing this underbelly stuff and the actual like right yeah the actual you know there's there's (laughs) operatives you know it's a big conspiracy right yeah Um, exactly and that so so you know in the comic version like that that sort of is the character and what I think is interesting is he's he's a fairly sympathetic character, but like the rest of the cast in the comic, um, it's very the view of him is very unflinching, and that they yes. you know the the series the the narration doesn't elide over some more unsavory aspects of his character, like his relationship. He has faults. Yeah, like his his relationship with faults. Mary Kelly is kind of. Sweet, but also, eh, you know, there's... A little creepy. He's got a wife. Yeah, he's, he's paying he's... a little bit too much attention to right, her. Right, yeah, yeah. Like, he's got a wife, but he's also kind of falling in love with Mary Kelly. And, you know, it's it's complicated. Yeah. People can't help how they feel sometimes, but it's also not great. He and was then... basically, like, emotionally cheating on his wife because he never sleeps with Mary Kelly. Yeah. But he did pretty much everything but that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, and that then... Um... A little, little risque. You yeah. know what's what's interesting is in the so in the com- this is what I'm building towards with comparison here is yeah. that in the comic there is a character a real person um, Robert James Lees who was yes. a 19th century psychic um, yes. and this is something based on reality is that um, you know psychics and uh, seances and mediums and stuff like that huge very popular very popular mysticism was huge at this time especially in england um i feel like everywhere but here yeah i definitely was telling me that there was sort of a it had a really big boom in the u.s after the civil war for obvious reasons a lot of people were grieving like a lot of there were a lot of yeah a lot of dead people fair amount of death (laughs) yeah Fair amount of death. I don't doubt and, that. But that then, you know, also had a lot of um, stuff going on in, in Victorian London and that Queen Victoria herself, you know, very famously was profoundly affected by the death of her husband. Um, yeah. And that she had this, you know, that's sort of part of her legendary is that she had this fixation and this kind of desperation to confirm that he was present in the afterlife and she was kind of desperate yeah. to... And if you wanted to, yeah, to have some sort yeah. of connection with him. And if you, you know, if you wanted to view her the way you would view a fictional character, it's like she is more or less the empress of the world and still cannot control At that death. point. You know, right? Yeah. Like, 
existential crisis um, monarchy yeah, style yeah exactly <laughs> um but yeah so there's this character robert lee's who ultimately mm-hmm. he so he's a psychic and something the comic makes very clear is he's a fake you know he did yes. he does not actually have powers yeah and he is slighted by gull in the comic mm-hmm. so he and he goes to aberlean and says i know who jack the ripper is and it is pure coincidence that he has accused Very. Gull because he just right. he just hates and, Gull and wants yeah. to cause a scandal. And then when he shows, yeah. you know, that's what cracks the case in the comic is like they show up and they're like, Mr. Gull, you're Jack the Ripper. And he's like, yes, I am. Yes, indeed, I am. <laughs> well, and I think Aberlene is also like... Uh, sorry to bother you, but uh, we've got this guy who, you know, we're just like following leads because you know how we do. And he was like really hesitant right, to you know, actually bring it up. He's guy. like, this is so ridiculous. <laughs> and he's like, there's no way that this is true. And then Gull's like, oh, yeah, that was me. And they're like, wait, what? <laughs> like, yes. And they, well, they can't account for me at this, that, and the other hour. I have, you know, a dozen people who can confirm that mm-hmm. I've rushed off to chop people up. Yeah. He just flat out is like. Oops, he caught me. You know, that is an interesting part of Gull's... So we're getting way more into the comic, but um, that is an interesting part of Gull's (laughs) psychology um, is that they they talk about how this this is a real thing, is that he had this famous... uh, He had like a personal motto or a personal rhyme he really liked, which was about, if I'm to be a a tailor, the best of all tailors I should be. And, uh, Mm -hmm. And he talks a little bit about how he wants to do something important and he wants to accomplish something great and it doesn't matter to him if people ever knew that he did it because it could just be between him and god but on a certain yeah. level that's a lie is that on a certain he level he really wants that notoriety he wants people to know he did this yeah well because he goes off on those like grand like displays of like i've changed like i've set motion for what will be in the 20th century like he's he goes through all this these crazy monologues about how he is like the causation of all these things to come and how amazing his footprint on life will be later down the road well after he's gone and it's like he obviously wants that recognition he's very adamant to expound on how like groundbreaking right. he is, you know? It, well, and I think a lot of it has to do with, like, how for him, you know, these horrible murders are very symbolic for him, obviously. Yes, and that extremely. When the when the from hell, you know, when, when the letters are happening and there's all this speculation on him, he's actually horrified that people don't interpret this the same way that he does. You know, that, yeah. like... He's on his own little trajectory, I tell yeah, you what. Uh, he's yeah. like, no, don't you see? I was doing cosmic stuff. I'm not just yeah. some freak. You know? Yeah. And it's like, yeah, you are some freak, man. I mean, you are, but you, you're like a freak on a mission, which is almost scarier, <laughs> yeah. to be honest. <laughs> so, so to bring it back to the film, they kind of combine uh, Robert Lees and Detective Aberlean or Inspector Aberlean together to make the uh, mm-hmm. give him actual powers in this version. Right, it's a hybrid. Um, Interesting choice. I'm not entirely sure of why they did that. I, um, I just. You know, I feel like they could have just completely done away with the whole seeing into the future bit and just had him be the inspector and never touch on that. And it would have been yeah. fine. Like, I'm, I'm not entirely sure of what no, they it... thought was important about that. Well, you know? because they don't they don't really show us Gull's whole thing about, you know, his weird going backwards and forwards in time. 
No, they don't show any of that. And so I'm wondering if in the writing process they were like, well, there's a psychic, you know, we should have the psychic aspect. So let's combine these two characters and give him actual powers. And But yeah, I felt like, you know, his his psychic abilities. Yeah, they were they were almost like a footnote. Right. Kind of. It just seemed unnecessary. Yeah, like he could honestly. just, if we're going to change the character that much, he could just also be a good detective. You know? Yeah, like, and it sounded like, you know, from the film perspective, they did make him kind of come off as a, you know, decades ahead of his time kind of inspector where he was able to, like, extrapolate more clues than the average inspector of the time by just, like, very minimal, like, actual like looking at mm. them and like he he knew to like you know the jack the ripper character was um drugging the women with laudanum to to kind of slow their motion down to be able to kill them easier right. and he knew to like he touched his finger to their lips and then smell and he knew what laudanum smelled like because he also was a dope fiend so he knew <laughs> oh, what opium good, smelled like in laudanum stuff. form he must be an upper crust mm-hmm. guy <laughs> yeah yeah like little things like that where you know you're not going to get that from a photograph yeah. and so he's actually seems to be a pretty decent detective but he keeps bringing up some stuff and people are like yeah you're full <laughs> of shit and it's interesting that they kind of changed it to be it wasn't that he was just like like i have no resources to work with and i just feel like i'm stuck in white chopper white chapel to then they played him off as he's just kind of ahead of his time and misunderstood yes. on top of having a weird psychic element to him so i'm like that was an interesting choice i don't i'm not sure why they decided that was a good yeah. idea but interesting i'll give them right that. well and i know there's there's certain <laughs> you know particularly for that time period there's a lot of like screenwriting rules you know, mm-hmm. and one of one of the like in traditional screenwriting and, mm-hmm. you know, one of the big screenwriting traditions is that if a character is the protagonist, they have to be good at the thing they do. Yeah. And that, you know, obviously. Otherwise, yeah, what's otherwise, the what's the point? <laughs> and of course, you know, the whole thing is like from hell is very compelling in part because Aberlene isn't very good at his job. You know? <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, yeah, but it's, exactly. They show the dysfunction. Right. And, it, and yeah. you know, but of course the comic is is working off of uh, looking at things from a very different angle. Completely. Definitely. And I, I did want to touch on the biggest discrepancy I thought was the ending. Yes. Um, the ending was like, but I mean, all the middle like guts of the film. It's like, OK, these chicks die. Right. Check, 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 check. Right. That's historical. Right. So trying to mess with that you're not going to have as much like leeway with something like that where like this is historically based so get that right (laughs) but then the ending they catch it's the whodunit so they catch gull's character which is ian holm and the masons have their trial which they do in both which was accurate but then the ending really twists with in the comic he gets put into prison and basically just like deteriorates mentally deteriorates until he dies yeah he just literally fades away in a really weird awkward scene where like the 
the right nurse the nurse the, is banging one of the they're the, like you bang one of yeah. the guards and it's like a weird like they're just having sex in the cell and he's literally just fading away into nothing and they're like ah he can't hear anything let's do this and i'm like what is happening 19th uh, century was a, a wild thing. time <laughs> wild i tell you i don't know what the point of that was but sure you know um but alan then, moore has yeah, a I lot don't... of I, I have a lot to say about alan moore and sex and I so does he of... <laughs> apparently yeah yeah so that happened in the in the comic but in the film you know this was kind of preluded to in in the middle of the film they focus on kind of the medical practices at the time and the lobotomy was starting to become a really big thing in the medical world for curing like hysterics and mental institution patients um so at the very end of the film he is tried guilty by the mason decree if you will and they basically you know make shit up saying "Mm, he needs a good lobotomy (laughs) and so they lobotomize him and then he sits in a cell and deteriorates that way um which i thought was fascinating which they actually do touch on that in the comic don't they but it's the gal who was having the uh yes who was having the the, the affair the uh, tryst with the is it prince edward i think so it's or is it albert I think well, there. Okay, Albert, so there's a million Prince I, Alberts, I, but I believe it is the Prince Albert. Everyone. But I makes think it was of. Prince Albert. Um, apologies if that's not. I'm I'm not a super history <laughs> buff, so I apologize if that's the wrong prince. But yeah, so the the gal who was having the tryst with the prince, they catch them. She's got a baby. Baby goes to the family. She gets stolen away into the in the night and gets lobotomized and just stuck in a in, in a, an insane asylum and forgotten. Um, and that's like the only time they really touch on lobotomies. Yeah, I, I thought the in, the ending choice was interesting because they had, um, you know, like the lobotomy was really heavily focused on in the film more, whereas like yes. in the in the comic it was a little kind of a passing, like oh, this is how we swept this person under under the rug, moving on. And they really drew quite a bit more um, in yeah. in the film for that. I thought it was an interesting choice for the ending, but very very different right um, well and i think it's again i think it's probably one of those needs of a film particularly at the time versus needs of a comic you know where it's like Mm -hmm. in the comic it's a comparatively subtle thing and again it works so well because we see things from gull's perspective yeah you know something i've been thinking about a lot is that part of the fascination with the ripper case is of course the the person who did it seems to have gotten away right yeah and that whenever whenever you do you know a fictional discussion of this i think there's there's a drive to make it all make sense Mm -hmm. and there's a drive to give it something resembling a happy ending Mm -hmm. because of course in real life you know the most likely thing is that he was some gross little pervert and he killed a bunch of people probably killed a few more and then yeah. died or got thrown in jail for something completely unrelated. Yeah, <laughs> and, and never right. got connected. Yeah, yeah totally. Um, and that, that's not, you know, that's not very satisfying, right? And so yeah. for for the film in particular, I think there's, you know, that sort of ironic justice aspect that Gull is this physician who's actually unempathetic and his symbolic execution is to have, you know, his mind ruined with yeah, this the death brutal of surgical... His mind. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that would be sort of my speculation as to why they did that. Yeah, I mean, it's a powerful way to. I mean, it's like killing somebody without actually killing them. Like they're, you know, 
who they were is dead, but they still have to live out the remainder of whatever time they have left under this, you know, half-life. Um, right, which yeah. Is it's what, a, lobotomies it's, are just awful. <laughs> right, it's a, it's almost worse, and especially for somebody like Gull, who's so yeah, proud of his mind. Very intellectual, know. yeah. Um, um, it's kind of a tragedy, honestly, to basically have this kind of mad genius stuck in his mind that isn't his mind anymore. Yeah, which is, yeah. you know, that's why it's like great, you know, it's like something that would happen in an episode of The Twilight Zone. Right? You know? <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, very, very interesting the... ending shattered glasses moment mm-hmm. um yeah but so that that's all very interesting i was thinking a little bit about mary kelly in the film and mm-hmm. as you were mentioning you know the ending of the, so the ending of the film if i remember right she is still in london at least initially right she gets away basically what right before the final woman is murdered when they think it's mary kelly she leaves goes somewhere and says that she'll wait for aberlene to come with her and run away together and start a family in a on a hillside somewhere um and he doesn't meet with her so she leaves without him and leaves london um right so she gets away and then aberlene kind of symbolically sacrifices himself because he says if he goes to her the conspiracy will be able to find her, her and then kill her right too. right the 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 illusion that she has died means that they don't have to murder anybody anymore they've done the cover-up they needed so if i if i change my routine in any way um they're gonna know something's off and she'll be in danger so i can't go to her and right then he has his like spidey senses are tingling and sees that she is you know She's taking care of the the baby who is now kind of an older little girl who right, was the right. daughter of the um the love tryst between the prince and her former friend. Right. Um, and so he sees that she's living a happy life with the child she always <laughs> wanted because obviously if you don't have a child in that era, what good are you? <laughs> yeah. Yes. And then he, you know, epically dies from an opium overdose as you do classic the way yeah. a true hero goes out yes chasing that dragon to the bitter end um interesting ending very very <laughs> very different <laughs> yeah well because i was you know i was thinking about so that um again losing gull's perspective like that's the interesting part of his mm-hmm. his psychic transcendence as he's dying and he becomes sort of disembodied and there is that sequence weird where moment <laughs> yeah well and so there's that sequence where he sees mary kelly has escaped back to ireland and is living in this yeah so similar yeah similar, it's similar but... but it's you know the part i like is that's the last thing he sees and he doesn't understand it and then she seems to see him and tells him to fuck off yeah. you know? <laughs> like, yes which i love um, yes <laughs> Which, uh, you know, again, like, I think that is that happy ending aspect to it is that there's this desperation to have something to have some tweak of justice of Mm -hmm. some kind in whatever small manner it can be. Right. And that in this case, it's the idea that Mary Kelly got away, which, of course, means somebody else was horrifically murdered in her place. Right. The Um, wrong person was obviously murdered. Yeah, that's a it's an interesting, you know, in in the afterwards, um, Alan Moore talks a little bit about how like almost every, you know, conspiracy theory and and alternative interpretation of the killing, they always almost always point to Mary Kelly somehow being the real target the whole time. 
because yeah. her death was the most you know her her dismemberment was the most really extreme really horrific and that the logic is like well she must have done something yeah there must who have else been, would do that to her for no reason you right? know and it's like well in real life it's probably the thing she did was be a woman inside this guy's like general 100 mile radius yep <laughs> like, she was existing in the wrong era at the wrong time she yeah. just had too many organs inside of her <laughs> <laughs> take them out excess um yeah, yeah. We're, which yeah so that that is interesting and and the thing i really like about you know moore's afterwards is he's so frank about his own feelings on things and how like he kind of yeah. engages us in a certain degree of self-criticism but yeah so in the in the comic um to contrast the two endings you know mm-hmm. um in the comic we have this prologue of Aberlene and robert lee's as older men um, yeah i think think it's yeah it's like the 20s mm-hmm. um and they have Roughly both that yeah they have both been you know silenced by the conspiracy they've been sworn to secrecy and they're part they're a pair of like a handful of the last people who still know what actually happened and they've yeah, kind it's of them reminiscing become friends and they're walking you know in the prologue it's them walking along on the beach talking and um they're I did want to mention this because Johnny Depp's version of the character is so much more, you know, kind of advanced. But there's a scene in the in the prologue where some young, you know, I think there's some young people like making out or something, or maybe it's maybe it's a sex worker. I can't remember. But it, she like pisses, you know, she shouts something at Aberlene and he starts screaming at her and says something like, "I'll have your guts for garters." You know, <laughs> it's like, whoa, yeah. oh, that's whoa. quite a line coming from you, bud. Yeah, <laughs> yowza. Um, mm-hmm. So, again, just that sign that Aberlene's kind of a, uh, there's a very unsavory parts of who he is. Um, he has a second thing that he does similar to that where he leaves a letter for Mary Kelly at the bar and mm-hmm. then she responds with a different letter and he just, he misses her and she's like, yeah, sorry. Couldn't meet up with you. I took your money. Whoopsie. Uh, you're a really nice guy. Sorry about that. And then he gets butt hurt and then gets hit on by a sex worker. And then he proceeds to scream at her and like goes through this whole thing of like, get the fuck off me. What do you think you're doing? How dare you? Do you know who I am? And he does this whole thing. I'm like, what? You were just pining after a different sex worker 10 seconds ago. Like, yeah, which the I think, high and mighty. I was like, whoa, dude. Okay. Yeah, which I, I think it's very deliberate. You yeah, know? And, totally. Uh, and there is that, you know, that whole thing about, like, the way sex workers were treated. I mean, then and now. But, um, you know, especially in the 19th century, like, there's in London, you know, there's this whole backstory about how there had been a, kind of a moral crusade against the there had been semi-legitimate brothels as far as like everybody knew it was a brothel you know but the police turned their their you know turned a blind eye to it and then there was this moral crusade to get those you know shut down so these women don't have to keep living in sin and that literally just meant their lives became way worse yeah (laughs) because now they have no livelihood you know it wasn't like there was then a massive jobs program right Um, the workhouses were the only other option and those were almost worse situation than being a sex worker right yeah <laughs> so um but that like because this had been shut down you know from the upper crust looking down it was like well, why are they still doing this and so one of the 
like one of the euphemisms was daughters of joy with oh, the idea yeah. that uh, that these women weren't doing it because they lived in such mind-numbingly crushing poverty, you know, yeah. that this was the best way to keep themselves alive. It was because they were all nymphomaniacs. And yeah. They just, they just really liked boys. Yeah. <laughs> They're just hysterical. They don't know what they want. Right. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, God. there's, you know, sexy, sexy mill workers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Who could resist I a know. guy with three teeth and a raging alcohol <laughs> problem? <laughs> Um, Yowza, sign me up. <laughs> right. But, uh, yeah, so that, that whole aspect is very interesting. And it's, you know, I know I know because the film is so centered around Johnny Depp. Very. Um, I think the, the most unsavory characteristic you can give him is that he has a drug addiction. And even then, I know. And they make it so endearing because it's like, oh, look how cute and peaceful you are just sleeping on your couch, having some absinthe in your bathtub. Aren't you precious? Right. It's the <laughs> it's cool drugs. You know, Ooh, like it's it's not like spicy. Johnny Depp doesn't go through some like horrible withdrawal or like freak out at somebody. It's like, I take these cool drugs and they're slowly killing me, but they let me see the future. But <laughs> I can see things like you'd never believe. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's a very, very glossy, glamorized kind of interpretation of what it might have been like to be a detective during the Jack the Ripper era. Yeah. Um, which is not at all accurate, <laughs> but hey, but, you who's know, counting? It's, it's, it's fine. It was 01 or 02 or whenever. Um, yep. And 01. That, yeah. So the, the grand finale in the comic, you know, compared to the movie, it's, you know, bittersweet ending. Mary Kelly gets away. Everything yeah. dies. Yeah. Um, and in the comic, you know, the the end is Aberlene and Lee's walking along on the beach, and Lee's is talking about how every single prediction he made, he made up, right? Like he was not a real psychic; he never saw anything. But then Shocker. he kept predicting things that, it, like these random nonsense he made up, kept coming true. And mm-hmm. the last, you know, shot of the of the comic is the two of them walking on the beach, and it's like very clearly the '30s, and he's saying. I think there's going to be another war. You know what it's like? Woof. Whoa, brutal. Woof. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It is interesting that, again, kind of the choices that Alan Moore made to have these kind of peaks into the future. Yeah. Um, really interesting choice because it is kind of disorienting, honestly. To have right. that experience as the reader, but it's also from the perspective of the person who is also having these very disorienting experiences, especially when it comes to goal. And yeah. it's like the disorientation that you're feeling is intended to be like, yeah, that's the same shit he's feeling. <laughs> it's nuts. And you're like, yep, got that. Thank you. And right. it's, it's I bizarre. Remember, I remember the first time I read it and I got to that spread, you know, where it's where it's gull in front of the skyscraper. Yeah. Um, you know, which is so, it's a wonderful Weird piece transition. of art. Eddie Campbell, yeah. great job. Beautiful work. And I, yeah. I hadn't really, I'm not sure that, I don't think that's his first like vision, but I didn't realize what a big role that would play in the story. Same. Um, which I, I think versus the movie is like very tightly focused on, you know, who who's Jack the Ripper? Yeah, Let's catch him. There's no time know. jumping whatsoever. Yeah. And I, I do want to throw out a, a little note there is yeah. that that sequence in the comic, uh, uh, specifically the drawing of Gull and his pose with his arms 
raised mm-hmm. in the air, silhouetted. Yeah. I believe that chapter, you know, every chapter starts with little quotes from different things. Mm-hmm. And more... Like Bible quotes and stuff, yeah. Right, Bible quotes and quotes from other pieces of fiction and philosophy mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Yeah. And more quotes... Fantomas, uh, which uh, I'm a really big fan of. Uh, they It was this weird series of French pulp novels from about 1910. Nice. About this unstoppable supervillain named Fantomas, who's this, he's the genius of evil. He's, you know, very sneaky. He's a master of disguise. And he goes around, you know, robbing people and killing people and doing all sorts of horrible things for basically no reason. He has no greater ethos. Yeah. But these were, so these are very popular pulp novels. And then they were some of the first um, silent films. Um, Silent film had actually been around for a while, like the Lumiere brothers, but um, they were some of the earliest friend, like right in in the lead up to World War I. There are these very old French silent films that are about Fantomas, and there's a very famous sequence, because they were kind of like, you know, those uh, old Republic serials, like the radar men from the moon, oh, and they always yeah. <laughs> they always end with like a cliffhanger. So this mm-hmm. was sort of a prototype of that, but okay. very famously in one of the chapters, Fantomas has trapped the heroes inside a building that's rigged with explosives, and Fantomas is wearing this all-black outfit and an executioner's hood. Ooh. And he stands there with his arms, his arms raised, yeah. just like Gull as the building explodes. And he's saying, cool. I win. You know? Ooh, <laughs> like, that's cool. I like that. And of course, that. the good guys get out. and they, you know. <laughs> but, but of course, yeah. But Ooh, yeah, so that's I just, a very cool visual, though. I had to, I had to draw attention to that because, um, you know, I think that it's a very cool little little note. And Alan Moore loves throwing those weird little references in his stories. Yeah, super obscure stuff that I definitely go over my head. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's oh my gosh, I, there's so many things about it that I, I, I feel like we've really just kind of talked about the graphic novel. Because let's be real, the the film was, the film was you know, very... it was just lit. Like, it's it, very, like yeah, you said, it's it was fine. I think I think if it was called Johnny Depp versus Jack the Ripper, you know, <laughs> like, I'd see that. <laughs> you know, then then it would be like, oh, okay, so this is like, you know, it's a, it's a goofy little two thousand know early aughts, you know, and mm-hmm. I think it's it's really just that this was such a huge, dense, subtle piece of work, and then it got turned into exactly the most Hollywood like. And they yeah. kiss at the end, and the bad ah. guy explodes. You know. Yeah, like. yeah. And I feel like the th- this is one of the few works that Alan Moore has done that I feel like there's no way that you could really do it justice from a film adaptation because yeah. it's it's coming from the antagonist antagonist's perspective essentially, which. Mm-hmm. You can do that. Like, you look at Dexter, where he really is the antagonist, but you root for him. Right. And it's a serial killer, and you kind of root for him in a weird way. Well, it and has such can... a, like, Dex- Dexter in particular, it has that sort of morbid humor. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. The, the whole thing has this this very dark sensibility and kind of weird, you know, versus, like, From Hell is so unflinching. Yeah, you there's. N- it's hard to portray this in a way that isn't literally just the ramblings of an insane person, because that's mm. what it is. But it's artistically put together in the form of a graphic novel, <laughs> which kind of works weirdly enough. Yeah. But from from a film like aspect, I feel like 
I feel like that'd be really difficult to portray yeah, in a know. way that isn't just like a creepy snuff film. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which I would not want to see. No, <laughs> like that's kind of, it's like a weird like visual diary of a snuff film essentially, which is a little creepy. Yeah, like I, I think you could probably cut it up and make it like a mini series um, mm-hmm. with all the, the perspective shifts and stuff like that. But yeah. honestly, as is the the case with so many things that are, I think, unsuccessfully adapted, it's because the adaptation is unnecessary. You yeah. know that like this this yeah. story is so tightly tied to mm-hmm. the medium that it's in that trying to like the only thing we get out of adapting it is the wonderful Sir Ian Holm. You know, Bless, I know. And I just, yeah. I would have rather had just, just do an audiobook version where we have him reading it, oh, and then you can turn yeah. the pages. You oh, know? bless! Like... That would have been great. <laughs> yeah, having Ian Holm read that. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah, I agree. I think that this didn't need an adaptation, and I, I, I mean, it was entertaining, I guess. Yeah, in a silly but way, but yeah, in a, in a kind of a like, ooh, it's a, a, a kind of a, a quick and dirty whodunit, mm-hmm. but. Knowing now what the source material what source material was, it's like, oh guys, what were you thinking? Yeah. Like Alan Moore, I'm just surprised that he let them touch this. Well, I think this was one of the first ones. Was it okay? Yeah, that makes sense. yeah. If I remember right, this was this was what you know. You always have these with Alan is Alan Moore is the grumpiest man in the world. Yeah, which is why this is so surprising. It's like, this is what came out of the work that he wrote. I'm like, oh my God, he must be dying. Yeah, and that I think it's like this and the stuff with, you know, you see these different like key points in his career where like one of these things happens and he's just like, well, I'm fed up with this. You suck. (laughs) But yeah, like I think, you know, I think he's talked about it a little bit and said like at the time, you know, he thought he could just sign the check you know say hey i'll I'll take it you know i'll take the money like do whatever you guys want um and that he hadn't really thought about how the film would affect the perception of him as a writer and the original work which he was very proud of yeah he should be it's amazing work like my my edition actually has now a major motion picture starring johnny depp and heather graham (laughs) down at the bottom you know? oh, and, yikes uh, yikes Ooh. and that like some of the re- if i remember correctly you know this wasn't a particularly well-reviewed film and some of the reviewers at the time were saying well what do you expect it was based on a comic book you know? yeah it was <laughs> like, uh, like excuse me sure have I, you read this like, comic book yeah i yeah. would if i was him i would be getting all my chaos magic rituals out <laughs> Yeah, uh, a pox on all your houses. Yeah, seriously though. Uh, yeah. yeah, and that kind of you know we already talked about this earlier, but it's like people just kind of write off comic books as oh yeah. they're you know they're infantile, they're they're not true literature. And it's like and ooh. To be no. fair, a lot of <laughs> comics are infantile yes. trash but then a lot of yes. like literary novels are actually infantile trash so yeah right. <laughs> like, dudes we just did 50 shades of gray yeah like. yeah exactly <laughs> where it's like i'm sorry that medium is not more sophisticated than you know the the guys in tights lasering each other are at least as sophisticated as all 50 pages of spanking <laughs> yeah <laughs> I did enjoy that one. That was very funny. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. And it, it's, it is interesting to see how people will kind of dismiss, oh, it's a comic book. And I'm like, no. 
I mean, yes, it is under that umbrella, but this is so much more than your average. Like, this is not 50s. Right, yeah, like it's not, it's not you know, Superman uh, yeah. having to figure out how to beat the, the green aliens or whatever. Yeah, um, yeah, this is so much beyond that. I mean, really, it is like art work and literature work had a baby. I mean, it's <laughs> yeah. it's it's beautiful in so many different aspects and it's so layered. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's really unfortunate because you would think that, oh, a film adaptation you're you're bringing this piece to life in like you know living color as it were and to just fall so short it's so sad because there's so much content (laughs) there to work with i'm just curious if people are like you know all those bits where this guy's just talking scrap it it's boring yeah we don't need that yeah we're just gonna focus on like a third of this book and roll with it like that's kind of how it felt that's the thing with a lot of these productions is obviously you know a film involves a lot of money um, yes and it involves talking to people with money yes um and that sometimes you know works out really well and they create a really great piece of art and other times Mm, there's a bunch of really (laughs) dumb decisions because they're like well you know Okay, we got to put in a scene of Johnny Depp looking really cute because we want like teenage girls to go see this. You know? Yeah. <laughs> like, and I feel like with the cast that they picked, they had a stellar cast. Oh, yeah. I would love I to see these that... people do, you know. Yeah. Um, anything uh, else. Yeah, yeah, literally anything else. Do <laughs> 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 some uh, Agatha yeah. Christie. That usually adapts pretty well. Yeah. <laughs> and there's some there's some amazing, like I didn't even list more than half of the other, like all the people who are in the Masons. There's some big. Oh, actors yeah. in there that have been in you know cinema since like the 60s i mean there's some folks in there that have been around and are really That's really well known and you know british commonwealth like that kind of extended yeah. family and you know some lovely americans and all over but um mm-hmm. yeah it's a stellar cast and i think that was kind of their their pull was "Ooh, look at all these people in this movie and just ignore the rest of yeah, it don't worry about the movie. well that's <laughs> don't i mean worry that's always such a funny thing when you see a great actor and kind of a bad movie like i mm-hmm. i remember um i think mads mickelson is actually in the clash of the titans remake is I'm, he I'm really? I'm pretty sure he is. But I never saw it because I love the original so much that I can't see it. They, that, you it just kill you me. are not you are not missing out. Um, <laughs> although I, I like there's like these wood cyborgs at one point. But, Ooh, um, that's not in the original. I can tell you that right now. Yeah, but, but yeah, if I c- recall correctly, there was a review at the time where somebody was saying, you know. There's actually a surprisingly good cast, and they're all clearly embarrassed because they're wearing fake tans and big fake beards. So you think, oh, it's just some Greek warrior. It's not Mads Mikkelsen. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it is interesting because, I mean, I'm sure that this helped the actors, like, kind of, like, put something in their repertoire. And I feel like the kind of common viewer is not going to realize that this was an adaptation because Alan Moore is kind of a niche thing. Yes. Um, so I think that they at least had that in their favor, that mm-hmm. it, it wasn't something that everybody knows it's a book. So I think that helped them as far as getting a large swath of viewership without having too much speculation. Right. Um, but yes. you definitely would have lost those diehard fans because it's like, what is this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which is, you know. It's a shame, but I'm I am glad I eventually picked up the comic. Um, Absolutely, because I think this 
I would say this is one of Alan Moore's best. Like, I would say this is definitely, for me, it's one of his his top pieces. It's something. I had yeah. one one last little thing to talk about. Yeah, final um, thoughts. Close us which out. Which was, uh, so this is this is a bit of an elaborate one, but um, a uh, friend of mine does a video series called The Panel Jumper. Um, he's, oh, a, cool. he's a Seattle area actor, and he also is very, very enthusiastic about comic books and you know sort of general nerd stuff but like a lot of stuff about comic books and comic book history nice and so he did a really interesting recent episode on a failed alan moore project called big numbers that's a name (laughs) it was i believe it was early 90s alan moore had an idea to do a comic that was very very grounded and subdued that was about chaos theory Mm, um, okay. And basically the concept is that the the literal plot is about a small English suburb having a this American com- company comes into a small English suburb and uh starts setting up plans to build a giant shopping center. Ooh. And how that will affect all of these different people's lives and the basic concept was about how you know about the concepts behind chaos theory and how large and complex systems produce unexpected results Mm -hmm. and that that's just sort of what human life is like you know that like totally ultimately there are so many things in your life that are out of control and that there are these chain reactions that happen that can have incredible effects on you that you have no control over and it's almost incomprehensible how little control mm-hmm. you have over it and how little you would even be able to understand it. So the, it was this really interesting high concept about that, right? Mm-hmm. And the production of the comic was an absolute disaster. Uh, <laughs> I, think they made, I think they made like two issues and then the oh. guy who did the art like ran off and there was all these oh. all these problems with it. Um, but what was sort of interesting is that the comic itself was such a huge elaborate process because they were doing photorealistic imagery. So they literally hired, like, I think they hired like 30 models and took a whole bunch of photos of them to use as reference, you know, different poses and stuff like that. And so basically the comic itself became an example of chaos theory and like how a huge project like has these unexpected results. And I think (laughs) From Hell is kind of interesting to think of in contrast to that, that I think the the reality is almost certainly an example of there was just some creep, you know, like that he probably was not a Masonic assassin. He probably was not a genius. He might have had medical experience. He might have just been a butcher. He... It might have yeah. been whoever, you know. Or he might have just been practicing long enough that he just got good at it, which is yeah. really creepy to yeah, think about. Which is really disturbing. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. yeah, so that's just something I was kind of thinking about as I was reading it, was how he had done, you know, these these two contrasting works almost simultaneously. And that the one where he has a consistent plot and a beginning, middle, and end is the one that worked. <laughs> the one, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Fancy that. <laughs> but yeah, so that's that's my last little thought on From Hell. I love it. Oh my God. Yeah. Well, <laughs> there's a lot. Uh, moral of the story, folks. If you want to like just lose hours of your life with Join the Freemasons wild ex- and become yeah, a horrible. Join- <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Become a Freemason. Don't, don't, don't actually do. Well, I mean, don't. don't. I mean, if you wanted to, you could. But no, it's like if you want to lose like hours of your life and just like contemplate life, read pretty much anything by Alan Moore mm. is what I would recommend. <laughs> uh, it's it's a trip, yeah. let me tell you. Um, all right, Mr. Dan. Well, before we close out, um, what are you doing? Are you writing anything? Have you recently been featured in anything? Are you reading anything? What are you experiencing? Tell us everything. Yes. Um, well, let's see. So hopefully by the time this one hits, I will have a story up on the website Mysterion Online. Um, so hopefully we'll have the, have the links and stuff in the description. Um, the story is called Oncharis Station. Or it might be pronounced Ooh. on Karis Station, but it is a science fictional work partially inspired by the lives of anchorites um, or sort of religious hermits. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's on the creative end of things. And cool. then on the personal end of things, semi-connected, I uh, just finished listening to the audiobook of a science fiction story called Hyperion by Dan Ooh. Simmons. Um, Ooh, I've heard of this, but don't... I have not read it yet. Yeah, it's it's very interesting. It's uh, it's sort of it's been described as a science fictional take on the Canterbury Tales. Is it's basically about Ooh. these this sort of diverse cast of characters mm-hmm. um, in a, a far future space empire. They have each received a summons to go to this planet called Hyperion, which is this very strange remote world. Uh, where this being is supposed to exist that's called the Shrike. And it's this strange, horrifying kind of metallic entity that's covered in spikes and (gasps) seems to be able to travel backwards and forwards in time. And it kills people seemingly at random. But there's also all of these beliefs about how it might be able to grant people their secret desires so it's this very genie vibe. Yeah, yeah, it's very and uh so it's about these people who don't know each other huh. like they have never met before and there there's this big cult dedicated to the shrike that has given them this command to go on the pilgrimage to see it and none of them Dude. is a member of the cult. So as they're traveling each of them is sort of sharing their story and why they feel like they have to go to the planet and it's it's a it's oh. a hoot. And that the, sounds amazing. The audiobook is fantastic. They got a different Ooh. uh they got a different voice actor for each character. Oh, I love so, it when they do that. Yeah, so it's almost mm. like a radio play, like when one yeah. character's, you know, telling their story, it'll switch to be, you know, like such and such, such and such. Um Ooh. So yeah, yes. really recommend it. Yes. Ooh, I'll have to look that one up. That sounds like a treat. I love it when they do that with the the different audios for each character. Ooh. And then awesome. uh, what uh, what have you been up to? <gasps> Ah, oh, Dan, you're still the only person who's asked. <laughs> Bless you. Um, it's because I keep trying you know, to get invited back. <laughs> of course. You are always welcome back, good sir. Uh, always. We've got a whole laundry list of things lined up for you, kid. Um, I actually, funnily enough, you mentioned the different audio um, per characters. I actually just reread Dune, but I did an audio oh. version, and they did that for that as well. Interesting. Um, was really, really good. They it was interesting because they had like the main mar- narrator, mm-hmm. and then they had their characters would bounce around between the different voice actors. But it wasn't for the whole book; it was like just highlights. I'm not entirely sure like why they chose to do it that way. Um, 
but I did enjoy it because it did kind of make it a little bit more of a dynamic read or listen really um, seeing as it wasn't just one voice the whole time which sometimes can kind of drone a little bit depending on the the reader you you can run into is like if there's a million characters and it's hard to keep track yeah and like (laughs) and pay voice actors (laughs) right and and just being totally blunt like i've noticed especially with uh men men who are voice actors like some of them will do whatever they can and then others have like they have one voice for ladies and if there's like eight different lady characters talking to each other, it's just this wonderful voice actor doing his best to sound like, you know, eight different women talking to each other, you know. It's Pepper Potts. Yeah, yeah. But... Do you know Monty Python? Oh, wait, wait, which one is that? Pepper The Pepper Potts are the like their their rendition of like housewives and they're they all talk like this oh, and yeah. they're it's just like a gaggle British. of like middle yeah, 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 yeah. middle aged British right. housewives and it's amazing. Discussing coal marks. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Just talk like this and have the tea and they yell at the cat. Yeah, it's the pepper pots and is I love it. I never knew that was their name. Yeah. Yeah. Uh yeah, so that's what I uh, I just finished, Dune. Very cool. Um, I love and Dune. Yeah. Yeah, Ooh, that's, mm, my bread and butter of sci-fi. I love it. Slow burn is for the win. <laughs> yeah, have you ever played the board game? There's a board game? There's a board game that I'm very I'm very interested in, but I don't think I would ever Ooh. actually want to play because it's one of those board games that takes like eight hours. Oh, God. You know, but it's like everyone, <laughs> you know, one player is the Harkonnens and the other person is the Atreides <gasps> and another pe- person is the Navigators and another person is the Fremen. And you all oh. form alliances and betray each other. Is it like Risk? It's but it's Dune? a weirder version of Risk. Um, I'd be like, the Fremen every time. <laughs> Every time. So each That's each so group cool. has their own like advantages. So like the Fremen, you know, they're good in fights and they can't. They don't get hurt when like sandstorms happen, and Heck then yeah. uh, you know the whole deal. Like one of the interesting mechanics of it that I I heard about is that the navigators are the ones who are like landing troops. You know, so if mm-hmm. you want to bring in more resources, you have to pay the player who's in control of the navigators guild, even if you're like at war with them. <laughs> oh my like, god! All right, you gotta here's pay the more toll. resources to bring my guys in, and the navigators. A toll is a toll, like, yeah, and a roll is a roll. Can, you know, and if like, we don't get no rolls, then we don't get no toll. <laughs> Wait, no, we don't get no tolls, and we don't get no rolls. <laughs> I, I believe that is the the space and guilds motto. <laughs> God, I have to look this up now, Dan. I wasn't yeah. aware this was a thing. Oh, yeah. Ooh, no, it's life a, changer. It's a big, okay. Big deal. Ooh, yes. I'm gonna have to look that up. All right. Well, thank you for your recommendations. I'm excited to see your piece come out. I will definitely be leaving a little link in the description for that bad boy. Um, and thank you to our listeners for joining us once again. And we will see you guys next time. All Thanks, right. guys. Catch you later, everybody. Farewell. And bam, check. <laughs> <laughs>